Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday, but you know what? The weeks do go by fast the older we get. But what doesn't go by fast is my being on the air podcasting and sharing what I enjoy with you all, my fellow listeners, history. Not just history, but the history that I enjoy learning about. How so? Well, just when I think I know everything there is to know about the American Revolution, for example, I'm always learning something new. And when I learn something new, I take it with uh, great pride because, um, after all, we're always sharing a story about something that, like, for example, the Boston Massacre or the Battle of Bunker Hill or when the 56 men came together to sign the Declaration of Independence. You know, just when we think we learned everything there was about those kinds of events, or those types of events, rather, there is something else that is told that turns the old story into a new story. After all, isn't history itself about telling stories, past and present, and lessons learned from the past and the present that can guide us in the future? I would say so. Well, as for this uh, segment that I'm going to be uh, on the air discussing with you all uh, in Paul Revere's Ride by David Hackett Fisher, we're going to learn about the rising of the militia as well as a rural panic in New England. Now, I must say this uh, to all of you. We are getting very, very close to, um, to the point where there is going to be an actual battle. So I'll just tell you this now, and I will remind you all at the very end when I'm on the air again next, we are going to be discussing about the first shot, the fight on Lexington Green. And I have no doubts that many of you were wondering when we would get to this point, but I have decided that after this session, that when I'm on the air again next, we are going to move into uh, the core of Paul Revere's ride when it comes now to the actual battle. Not just the actual Battle of Lexington, but but the Battle of Concord. We won't talk about both battles in one podcast, but we will be talking about the, the first shot fired being at Lexington. After all, we must keep in mind that uh, Lexington and Concord those battles were fought on the same day of April 19, 1775. But let's focus our attention right now on the rising of the militia and a rural panic in New England. So our first uh, leadoff question is the following. Prior to Paul Revere's arrival into Lexington, what had the men themselves already achieved? Well, we're not talking about just ordinary men. How about, um, how about men who um, identify themselves as militiamen? What could the militiamen, most notably of Lexington, achieved just before Revere himself arrived? Well, the men of Lexington had already gotten dressed to assembling their muskets. So they've been given the proper um, warning that, hey, British troops are... Are not, are not too far away, but they're um, somewhere in close proximity of Lexington. You know, you all know what you have to do. After all, 
it is, it's probably fair to say that many of these militiamen are no strangers to warfare, and we're going to learn that out here soon. But I can tell you right now that you know, they don't probably need to be reminded of um, being knocked on the door each day when something um, unexpected happens, although they probably do need to be reminded from time to time, but perhaps a, a, a good reminder every so often isn't a bad thing. But these men are very well-disciplined individuals. They know what it takes to uh, look after one another. They know what it takes to be um, loyal in the sense being loyal to their country, in this case not being so loyal to the British, but loyal for what it means to uh, stand up for what they believe in. So we might be surprised um, to know that these men who, okay, they may not have gone to um, school in England, many of these men obviously are farmers, many of these men are um, what you call what we might call today as middle-class men, but they are men who um, who are no strangers to um, hardships. They are no strangers to conflict. But going to war is not something that's in their blood. However, they know that the, that what's at stake before them is just a question of time. We're not talking five to six months. They know that they could be looking at a day or two at best before an inevitable conflict itself um, occurs where perhaps blood itself will be shed. I know it doesn't sound nice, but that is the reality we are looking at. So basically, yes, the men of Lexington, besides already having gotten dressed to assembling their muskets, um, the Lexington men had already heard the alarm sounds, or I should say the church bells. You know, in other words, um, you know, after all, folks, you know, churches themselves are the largest buildings in the community, or in the communities for that matter. So whenever there's a sign of trouble or a sign of warning, the best thing to do is ring the church bell, and that brings everyone um, from the community uh, together um, in preparation for what uh, for what might lie at stake, but the church bells obviously are ringing, but that could also be attributed to uh, word of mouth by uh, couriers or dispatch riders. So where are the Lexington militia going to assemble? They will be assembling at the Commons, A.K.A. Lexington Green. The Commons or rather Lexington Green will be mentioned quite a bit, not just in this podcast but uh, session, but in the uh, next session and perhaps in a few other sessions as well. So keep an eye on, on um, the commons or uh, Lexington Green. Our next question is the following in regards to the rising of the militia. Who's John Parker? I don't believe many of us would know who he is. After all, he's probably not on the same level as, as a George Washington or, um, or even Dr. Joseph Warren. But nonetheless, John Parker is commander of Lexington's militia. He earned that title, or rather rank, I should say, by fellow townsmen. John Parker was someone whom, um, whom others could identify with. In other words, they could look up to him in times of danger. They saw him as a leader who wouldn't back down, but knew how to rally his um, men 
and keep them in track or keep them in line to where um, fear itself would not get the better of them to where they um, to where they no longer um, must were able to muster uh, courage to fight. So John Parker, basically, it's probably fair to say that even he himself could be a veteran of a more recent war, being the French and Indian War. But we will, um, I think we should be reminded of the fact that most of the militiamen who uh, who would go on to fight at Lexington and even at Concord were um, veterans of the French and Indian War. So we must, you know, keep in mind that, you know, the men who are um, about to, ready to make some of the most important sacrifices in their life are no strangers to battle. You know, yes, they've seen the enemies before. They've seen enemies big and small. And while, yes, they know that they'll be going up against the mightiest empire in the world, I mean, they already know that they are in a war with the mightiest empire, but they haven't gotten to the point where it's going to be a physical war, but they already know that that onto itself is imminent. However, they're not afraid to go head-to-toe with the mightiest empire. And it's important, because if you're afraid to go head-to-toe with the mightiest empire, then how can once, then how can you say, based off of what Ralph Waldo Emerson said years later, how could there ever be a shot heard around the world? That wouldn't, go hand, that wouldn't um, be doable if you were afraid to go head-to-toe with a powerful empire. So as for John Parker, I should note out that his occupation was that of farmer and mechanic. But he was also a veteran of military wars, as I said a moment ago, from years past. Now we do know, uh, historians know rather, that between the hours of 1 to 2 p.m. on April 19, 1775, Captain Parker's militia began assembling at the Lexington Green, or at the Common. The men were wandering and... The men uh, themselves that were want, that were coming into Lexington Green were wandering in at all hours to assemble, so it's not like you know everybody just arrived at one time. We must uh, remind ourselves of that. You know, we also have to remember too that people don't have cars. There's no such thing as the modern day automobile at this time, but we will find out soon that men are coming from uh, different directions. But I think it is worth pointing out how they um, how they uh, came, because after all, you know, as I said a moment ago, they all didn't come at one time. Many of Lexington's militiamen were hardworking dairy farmers, whose end work results were tied directly to Boston's market. Okay, you know, I probably mentioned earlier that most of these men in Mass in uh, Lexington, but even on the outskirts of Lexington. The militia, the militiamen in general are hardworking people, but in the case of Lexington, these men are primarily dairy farmers. The men themselves were men of property and independence. Okay, men of property meaning that they owned land. They may not have been aristocrats like you would find down in the uh, southern colonies, but they were men of independence. And what I mean by independence is that they were um they um believed in self governing they they didn't believe in outside intrusion they didn't believe in uh foreign uh powers governing their daily lives 
On the other hand, I think they would have been fine had Parliament not um, infringed taxes upon them without their consent. I think they would have been fine if uh, Parliament had not asked, um, well, Parliament in general had not asked the colonies to uh, pay for the costs of, of the French and Indian War. But had uh, Parliament not uh, been so, um, what do you call it, Parliament not been so um, backstabbing and ignorant toward the colonies, I think it's fair to say that maybe, just maybe, there might not have been an American Revolution. But as for the uh, men in uh, Lexington, uh, besides being property, besides being men of property and independence, these men served on juries. They voted in town meetings, and they managed their own affairs. So they know how the system works. Why should it be fair to them to have to sacrifice their own personal freedoms just to benefit uh, an institution 3,000 miles away who's only looking after themselves but not after her subjects? Since 1620 the year the Pilgrims first arrived into Massachusetts, how many conflicts had broken out between the great European powers, like England, France, and Spain, for example, where, at the same time, those conflicts involved the New England region itself? So, how many times, or how many conflicts, had broken out between the, the great European powers that, in, that included the New England region itself? The answer is four. Massachusetts found itself involved in four conflicts between 1689 and 1763. The first, I want to say, being in 1689, was King Philip's War involving Spain. And, of course, the most recent prior to the American Revolution is the French and Indian War. So there again, folks, New Englanders are no strangers to war, and we're going to um, learn more about that here soon. Now, um, I'm sure most of you all are wondering, okay, when we define men going off, to, um, going off uh, into battle against the British, what is the age range in Massachusetts that defines who serves in the militia and whom is confined to another group. Well, I can tell you this, that men between the ages of 16 and 50 were required to serve in the militia, whereas an older uh, group of men ranging from ages 50 to 70 served in what is called the alarm list. And, and what's ironic about the alarm list is that this group of men would be ordered... Um, they would be ready for service when the matter itself was dire. So in other words, if the matter is that dire, it's urgent. You need to be ready to go at any moment's notice. Well, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress favored one quarter of its militia being organized in minute companies ready to march at the shortest notice. Minute companies and ready to march at the shortest notice? Well, when I think of minute companies, there's something else that comes to my mind. Does it, do any of you, have you, any of you all ever heard of this term? 
Minutemen. Um, I've known about that term for some time, and Minutemen are usually were usually referred to as uh, men who um, came on at the last minute, ready to fight. They had their they had all their uh, belongings and essentials ready with them, but they came out on the field ready to fight at a at a last minute's notice. So let's learn more about about this uh, minute company or um, minute men because they uh, are going to be very um, essential when it comes to uh, fighting at Lexington and Concord. Before April of 1775, which town would become the first to create a company of militia Minutemen whom would get themselves ready within a short time's notice? I'll give you some choices. Choice A, Roxbury. Choice B, Salem. Choice C, Marblehead. Or choice D, Worcester. The answer is choice A, Roxbury. And how ironic, uh, Roxbury is home of, um, was the home of Dr. Joseph Warren. And uh, Roxbury itself isn't that far from uh, the outskirts of Boston. But it was in Roxbury which uh, became the first town to create a company of militia Minutemen whom would get themselves ready within a short time's notice. Roxbury's militia Minutemen I should say that, um, rather, before I say they're militia Minutemen, Roxbury um, established the first company of militia Minutemen on December 26th, 1774. This is a great way to go about getting a system into play as one year comes to an end and a new year is is soon on the um, verge of uh, beginning. So, Roxbury's militia Minutemen were required to perform essential exercises that ranged from marching to fixing of bayonets to assembling muskets, and all of these exercises were required to be done twice a week. That's not bad, folks. Hey, look, you know, we can't assume anything. Even in 1774, late 1774, going into 1775, Massachusetts already knows what's at stake. They know that war is inevitable, but what they do know is that in order to be prepared for the inevitable, um, our uh, militias need to be training. They need to, they need to be training constantly. Not Maybe not every day, but they need to be training at least, you know, two to three days a week. And in order to, um, be consistent, yes, you need to be training regularly each week because all of this training will will help you as an as a soldier become um, disciplined. It will also make you have um, better respect for um, for what you have to do in terms of serving your country. but it also gives you a sense of pride and accomplishment. but I also believe it would give you a sense of knowing that you're an example of what's called survival of the fittest. If you don't um, prepare yourself ahead of time, then how are you going to know how to go head-to-toe with the most dominant empire in the world out on the battlefield? Well, as a 
as a reward token for Roxbury's Militia Minutemen, they were paid one shilling for every day of service. However, I don't know if any records of this was ever um, found, but if a, if a militia man did not show up, he got fined a shilling. In other words, we could say that he had his part of his allowance taken away from him. And it's not so much that he got fined for not showing up, but how about being fined for uh, not performing uh, the exercises or the mandatory exercise per the day, date, and time that the instructor himself required his uh, company to be uh, having done so. So in other words, serving in the militia, most notably in Massachusetts, is a deep uh, commitment. You know, oftentimes when we think of the militia, we think of them as a, just as being a bunch of ragtag individuals who have no uh, unity. They are all of what we call I, me, myself. And while that did exist in, um, say, Pennsylvania, and to a degree, uh, most notably in South Carolina, in Massachusetts it's different. And it might be different because so many families stuck together, families uh, marrying one another to where they uh, lived on the same property. And when it came time to serving their country, they knew how to stick together as one. So I can honestly say that the best example of uh, militia cohesiveness or militia unity uh, came in uh, Massachusetts. After all, Massachusetts... The Massachusetts license plate states the spirit of America. Well, there's a reason why it's the spirit of America. It's where it, it Massachusetts is truly the cradle for American independence. You know, yes, Virginia played a big role, but I still b believe that it was Massachusetts that laid it all out. If it weren't for them, I'm not sure who could have uh, stepped in and uh, provided that foundation. Maybe Virginia. But what's unique about Virginia and Massachusetts is that um, is that uh, over time Virginia picked up where Massachusetts started, and whatever um, sufferings Massachusetts endured, most notably from the intolerable acts of 1774, Virginia, including many of the other colonies, came to Massachusetts' defense. But even in Virginia, leaders like Thomas Jefferson said that um, that when the port of Boston was closed, Virginians would engage in uh, days of, um, of fasting. In other words, they knew that the people of Massachusetts were uh, lacking the most essential provisions. And so Virginia, along with, say, South Carolina and other states, sent um, aid to uh, Massachusetts. So I think it's fair to say, though, that as we come into April of 1775, that many of the other colonies, even though there are people who are still skeptical about wanting to declare separation from England, I, I do believe it's fair to say that other colonies know that war is pretty much inevitable. It's just a question of wanting to accept the true reality of what is going to uh, happen. But little did anybody know that in April, on April 19th, 1775, that the first uh, shots would be 
um, would take place in Massachusetts. Uh, on the other hand, though, most people don't know that uh, two days after the shots heard around the world happened at Mass in uh, Lexington and Concord, uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, had its own um, version of um, of a conflict that was somewhat similar to um, Lexington and Concord, but that would have to be shared for another time. But there again, it's just another example of where Virginia and Massachusetts um, are on that same page of uh, dealing with the inevitable. I'm sure many of you are probably wondering, well, is Lexington like the other colonies? Not the colonies, but the towns. Did, you know, if all the other towns had militia, had um, Minutemen, what about Lexington? The answer is no. Lexington never had its own company of Minutemen. They preferred to keep their entire militia together as one. Well, I guess it's fair to say that some towns are just different, but if their strategies work, that's, uh, that's all that matters. So while uh, British soldiers and officers were dressed formally, they often mocked the clothing and drill tactics of rebel forces or Massachusetts militiamen. I must say that New England um, soldiers, they weren't dressed in true formal attire like their British counterparts. But it is very fair to say that um, the Massachusetts militiamen were very well educated when it came to um, keeping their weapons clean, along with knowing how to use them. Okay, they may not have been the, the most well-dressed of men, but that doesn't mean that they're not smart or not intelligent. They just come from a different, um, a different breed, a different, um, a different level, or maybe a different class. But, as the old saying goes, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Well, okay, the Massachusetts uh, militiamen, yes, they were probably ragtag, they may not have had top-of-the-line clothing, but many New England militiamen were veterans whom had seen service from the French and Indian War. So in other words, they knew what it was like to go head-to-toe with the enemy. They knew how to fire their muskets. They knew how to reload. They knew how to take care of them. They knew how to clean them. So hey, if you know how to do all that, then you are in very, very good standing in terms of being able to go head-to-toe with a dominant um, world power. Prior to hostilities ever breaking out between England and her subjects, being the 13 colonies, were Massachusetts towns required to keep their own supply of munitions? Yes. Uh, on the other hand, some towns operated differently by keeping munition supplies in their churches or meeting houses. Hey, you know, churches are... Um, are a huge gathering place in the community. So why not? I think it's smart to uh, store munitions um, in a church house because, after all, there are probably um, secret places in a church or secret, uh, what do you call it, um, rooms or facilities in a church where you could store large munitions without them ever being detected. And especially in a time of uh, crisis, it's not a bad place to uh, send uh, vast quantities of supplies because, after all, if you're going to be uh, somewhere 
near um, a major um, facility like a church and you're running low on munitions, then you know where you can go. Now, despite Britain's embargo on exporting munitions to the colonies, the Massachusetts towns had seen a rise of munitions stocks increase between the winter and spring of 1775. Somehow, uh, it's good to know that the Massachusetts towns are finding a way to make up for this um, for a deficit. The only colony in 1774 that was even receiving munitions supplies from England was Georgia. How so? Well, you know, for starters, Georgia didn't send any delegates to Philadelphia for the First Continental Congress. Instead, Georgia was fighting a war against the Creek Indian Nation, and so therefore, who does Georgia need help from? The mother country, England. Obviously, Georgia didn't go along with that non-importation agreement, meaning that they, uh, meaning that if Georgia had gone along with it, they would have agreed to um, prohibiting all imported British goods from coming into America. Now we're moving on to a rural panic in New England. Once the militiamen had departed for Lexington, what was the mood like for each town? All right, well, for one, the mood itself was one of emptiness. But how about darkness? And what I mean by darkness is a huge, you know, it could be a huge giant cloud of uncertainty, a huge, you know, black, um, you know, darkness. We think of being black, you know, people asking questions left and right about what's going to happen if the inevitable happens, what's going to happen if our loved ones don't come home, what's going to happen if um, everything we've worked for is no longer around. In other words, what happens if the British come and destroy our um, homes? So yes, there's, a, there's emptiness, you know, many families, uh, you know, wives see their husbands and sons going off. And yes, there's a, a great sense of uncertainty looming ahead where families behind know that their husbands and sons weren't going away for drill instructions, but instead confronting the inevitable war with British troops. So there you have it. I mean, it's these are uh, trying times for all um, for all people, not just um, you know when I when I when I hear the phrase "these are the times that try men's souls," of course I think of uh, Thomas Paine's famous book uh, or pamphlet being Common Sense. But even before 1776, there were many of times where there were trying times for families, regardless of the crisis at stake. But in April 1775, there are going to be a lot of trying times, all within a day's time frame. The people of New England, as I said earlier, they um, did not wish for war, but yet it had been something already rooted in their culture, given over the last 140 years, the region itself had gone to war at least once per each generation. A majority of these men, of the men whom departed for Lexington, were French and Indian War veterans, and they themselves, along with their families, knew what war's actions or outcome, effect, outcome effects could yield short and long term. Well, for one, war is not a game. 
Two, war itself leaves psychological scars as well as emotional scars. And three, war itself can, um, well, it can tear families apart, even in the case of loyalties, which um, history has shown where wars themselves did um, tear families apart, all in the name of what side they took. But in this case, you know, there's no, um, what do you call it, loyalty division. But what we do know is that uh, the men whom are going to, uh, whom are departing for Lexington, those who survived the French and Indian War, their wives are wondering, are what other sacrifices now have to be made to ensure that our freedom will be secured long term? But will it also mean that our husbands will come home safe like they did from the French and Indian War? A lot of uncertainty. And of course, you know, for many people, of course, I'm not a veteran of war, but I do applaud though the men and women who make the sacrifices for our great nation to ensure that our freedoms are protected at all costs. But there are many veterans I know who, um, who have a hard time opening up about what they have seen um, overseas. Uh, and that can be said for any war, most notably ranging from Vietnam to the Persian Gulf War, the, um, the, Af- the, war in, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, yes, there are scars that people um, carry with them, and sometimes it takes years for those individuals to want to open up to others about what they really did see. You know, I mentioned earlier about darkness about when the um, militiamen had departed for Lexington and what the mood itself was like for each town. You know, I mentioned about darkness. I'm sure many of you all have seen the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Not to get off track, but I'm going to use uh, darkness as an example here. The memorial itself is, is, um, is black. Why black? Because it represented a dark period of time in, in the United States' history. And there were many people whom even objected to a Vietnam Veterans Memorial because they didn't like the fact that, um, that our mission to Vietnam did not result in something that so many, so many wanted to believe was worthwhile, but it turned out that perhaps it wasn't. We had gotten ourselves involved in a conflict where neither side really wanted to uh, come to some kind of a compromise that would have ensured the safety and well-being of outside forces like the United States. But in the end, the memorial was built honoring the um, close to 60,000 men and women who had lost their lives. But the black but the black wall, and it's just not an ordinary little wall, it's a huge wall honoring all those who lost their lives. But it's a black wall because it represents darkness in our nation's history. But, but after seeing the memorial, you do walk away with, the, with light and knowing that despite all of the um, uncertainty that came out of that war, something good came out of it and that the memorial honored those men and women who were not forgotten. So we certainly have to remind ourselves of the sacrifices that were made even before 
we became the United States of America. Remember, folks, in 1775, we're still considered colonial America. And yes, even before 1775, uh, the people of New England have already, um, they already know what war is like. For the, for the last, um, what, almost six um, generations of people uh, living in Massachusetts, they've been a part of uh, four major conflicts. And I should point out that there were no celebratory parades for militiamen's departure to Lexington. So in other words, we don't have a, a parade saying, come home, we'll miss you, that kind of thing. No, we don't have time for that. When did the great fear in New England first begin? Well, for one, it began when Paul Revere himself coordinated the first alarm warning about British troops advancing, followed by a second wave of other midnight riders whom warned, whom warned the countryside from a multitude of different directions. Okay? I'm glad that the Midnight Riders have um, made their case known to the people from throughout all of Massachusetts. While the warnings have been good, I can see where there becomes a great fear amongst the people. This is where people are going to have to uh, come together and show mental toughness. While, yes, they have every reason to be scared, they also have to be strong and resilient because if they're not if they're not sound, then how can they be um, strong and resilient not towards other loved ones, especially their children, but how about other members in the um, outlying um, towns or even in um, or or even in the greater community in general? This has to be an us we ourselves um, movement, not just on the battlefield, but even in even as uh, townspeople work together to combat the fear. While the initial great fear itself, at the moment it came upon, was seen with danger, terror, and uncertainty, and not knowing what the outcome would ensue once British troops and militiamen squared off at Lexington, there still remained a beacon of light. Thanks to the Midnight Riders going above and beyond and getting the word out about British troop movement. There you have it, folks. If it weren't for the Midnight Riders, you know, who's, I believe it's fair to say that whatever level of fear that the, um, that the townspeople had in the outlying um, communities outside of Boston, their f fear levels would have shot up even more. But the Midnight Riders, are the one, including Paul Revere himself, are providing us with a beacon of hope. They're, pro, they're still providing, there is still a light at the end of the tunnel. But if it weren't for the Midnight Riders, there's probably not any light for um, hope of um, unity, for hope of um, awakening, for hope of anything that could come out as being relevant. We need hope even in times of fear. After all, uh, Franklin Roosevelt said some years later, of course, <laughs> might be getting a little too far ahead, but I think he was the one that said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself and how true that is. We can be afraid, but if we stay afraid f forever, then how are we going to know what it's like to venture out and know that while venturing out may have some uncertainty, in the end, you might come out better than you think. 
So how did the militiamen in general go about advancing toward Lexington and Concord? Some advanced or came as individuals. You know, they came on a one-by-one basis. Other militiamen arrived in small parties, whereas a handful of a handful or majority would have come as an entire uh, unit. So let's remember, folks, not everybody came together in one large uh, unit, but I think it's fair to say that a minority would have arrived as an entire company. I guess I'll go ahead and point this out now because I'm sure many of you all are going to wa- are wondering just how many people, just how many men actually arrived at the uh, Lexington uh, Common or at the Commons or Lexington Green. How many men were present at Lexington? I'll give you a number right now. The number is between 70 and 100. Historians know at best there were roughly 77 to 80 men. So there you have it, folks. Uh, So let's keep in mind that the um, vast majority of the men who came to Lexington, it was under 100. But there's probably a good reason for that. But I don't want to spoil the... um, to spoil any other information um, at this time uh, regarding um, regarding what would uh, happen or ensue after Lexington. Families left behind, and there were a lot of families that were left behind, but they didn't stay fixed inside their homes. Some families packed carts and coaches, piled high with essential valuables in fear that if the items got left behind, they would fall into the hands of the enemy, a.k.a. the British. Other families left their homes, but sadly had no final destination stopping place. Uh, Remember, there's no, um, what do you call it, there are no uh, shelter homes at this time. There are no, um, what do you call it, mass refuge homes where, um, you know, like in times of uh, natural disasters where you can go um, to like a... to like a um, stadium, or you can go to um, maybe a convention center, maybe some large gathering facility where people can go so that they're not left at home in fear that um, that if they stayed home, they could lose their life. So, you know, there's no such thing as a hotel. Of course, yes, there are taverns, but even taverns themselves, you know, taverns don't have a 100 rooms. They might have you know, five to ten rooms at best, or even just three to five at loan, depending on how big the tavern itself is. But even taverns themselves can only accommodate but so many people. And it could be fair to say that even um, most of the taverns in and around Lexington and Concord are being used uh, perhaps for military uh, purposes. Military preparation purposes, I should say. Some families... um, sought safety in the homes of neighbors nearby, whereas other families and individuals sought sanctuary in the places of worship, churches, okay? So even churches have become um, sanct- not just um, a religious haven um, facility, but a haven for shelter. If I was alive during this time and wanted to go somewhere where where I um, needed a place of um 
shelter, I think ch- the church would have been the best uh, place to have gone. Now, were there people who managed to keep busy despite the uncertainty surrounding them? Yes, there were. Um, I can give you a good example. There was one man named Joseph Coolidge who was a tax collector. He volunteered his time by showing a militia company the road to Lexington. In the town of Pepperell, being 20 miles northwest of Concord, the women, the women in town whose husbands had already left to go to Lexington remained on high alert to where they were patrolling the um, town into the late evening hours, and, on, and luck was on their side to where they stopped a rider whom happened to be a Tory. This rider was searched, and he was found to have had sensitive papers. Sensitive papers, how about being, in the, um, being that of um, perhaps plans to um, either attack um, the militiamen or to attack uh, communities? I mean, obviously it was very sensitive to where, the, um, to where these uh, women were able to confiscate his papers they got sent to Groton, where a committee of safety studied them. As for the story writer, he was sent to a tavern nearby where he was held a prisoner. Well, it is fair to say that even um, the wives are not afraid to um, take a stand. After all, they're doing more than just running the home. You know, they're just not sitting around saying, well, we'll just let other people um, patrol the uh, town while we sit here and do all the domestic work. Nope. Women are playing a very vital role at this time, and they will continue to play a vital role even when, even in the aftermath of, even in the aftermath once uh, the shots have been heard around the world have taken place. Did the great fear itself spread to loyalists in Boston as well as British troops? Uh, believe it or not, it did. Those adhering and serving their allegiances to the crown became very conscious as they themselves were watched from all angles by patriots, or I should say Whigs, whom had no use towards those whom put their fellow countrymen in jeopardy going to face-to-face in the open battlefield where war itself was simply inevitable. You know, it's one thing to dislike the enemy, but the enemy themselves ought to know that no matter where they go, they're being followed. No matter how well they try to disguise themselves by blending in, they can still be um, recognized as someone who um, is a fraud. And we found that out earlier um, from an earlier podcast where um, two of two uh, troops serving under General Gage went undercover to try to uh, blend in as being Whigs, but they were... Um, only to be rebuked because uh, the townspeople weren't stupid enough to fall for their bait. Given the current state of fear amongst American people, amongst the American people, what did American leaders go about doing to modify the existing uncertainties? Couriers, or I should say dispatch riders, continued to navigate through the towns and warning people of British troop presence as well as informing them about the course of events. And then you had people who were um, another way of alleviating the fears that people 
could do was to attend church where the ministers would go above and beyond to preach sermons to their congregations of hope and unity with the inevitable only happening within a matter of time. War. Now these are trying times. And there's a lot at stake. You know, families are very worried for their loved ones because they know that there is a great likelihood that some of their loved ones may not come home alive. But they also know the sacrifices that are going to have to be made, whether they like it or not. After all, they know there's no going back. After all, somebody's got to lay the foundation for separation from England, and it starts right in Massachusetts. Other colonies are picking up what Massachusetts has already started, and they too know that it's just a matter of time before war becomes inevitable. And while, yes, you do have other uh, leaders who are still holding out for that olive branch petition who remain skeptical about what would happen if separation from, Indo- separation from England takes place, we, we just have to hope, though, that with all this uncertainty, not just in Massachusetts, but even in Philadelphia, as the Second Continental Congress is still um, debating on what to do, there, um, there, truly just re- there truly is a lot of uncertainty. But what we will know here soon is that um, within a few short hours on April 19th of 1775, the inevitable will be a true reality. We still don't know to this day who was the first to fire the shots, but we do know that once the shots heard round the world happened, there was no going back. Well, we've covered a lot of ground uh, tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again as always. But when I am on the air again next... We will be discussing the first shot, the fight on Lexington Green. So continue to keep your seatbelts fastened because we're going to learn um, some very unique information about what really went on at Lexington. You know, yes, we've seen photos, not just photos, but portraits of what past... um, artists or historians would have liked for us to have believed that really took place at Lexington, but we could be in for some um, opposite findings. That's the unique thing about history. Some people like to tell their own stories, which is fine, but on the other hand, not everyone's stories from years past are always accurate based off of how a portrait was done or or how the story itself was told. Well, thank you again for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time with you all. Take care and stay safe.